Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the second and final installment of a two-part interview with oncologist and medical futurist Daniel Kraft. If you haven't yet heard part one, there's a link on the page where this player is embedded, and I strongly suggest you go back and listen to it before this one. And with that, back to my conversation with Daniel Kraft. Let's talk about continuous blood pressure monitoring. Well, we know that high blood pressure, hypertension, about a third of Americans have it. Less than half of these hypertension patients have it well-controlled. And when your blood pressure is too high, it gives you significantly higher risks for heart attack and stroke and kidney problems and eye problems. And generally, we measure that once a year. Yeah, with a 100-plus-year-old squeezing your wrist, which may or may not be accurate depending on how it's done. Even if you have hypertension, you measure at the same time every day, that's not necessarily accurate. It's going to change the phases of the day and your stress level and how much coffee you might have had, lots of elements. What we want is a technology like a patch or something on our watch that will seamlessly track our blood pressure in the background. And there's several companies working on approaches, kind of like a little radar, one local one called Blumio and a couple others where essentially a radar that looks at your arteries and can pick up systolic and diastolic really blood pressure. Just from a wristband. This one's on your upper wrist. That if we can get a handle on that, we can then potentially really tweak your your medications and yeah. maybe your exercise regimen and really understand that, wow, in the afternoons you're really running high. We need to tweak your medication in the morning. Once we get good at parsing the data, which we're not yet, that should be highly predictive of stroke and heart attacks and things like that. Right. And any of your listeners who may have hypertension or a family member does, go to an Apple store or online and buy a connected blood pressure cuff. You can connect that to your smartphone. Start catalyzing the future of health care. If you have a healthcare problem, yeah. there's quite a few technologies already out there. Some are FDA approved. Some are you know, consumer devices. In fact, in the next month or so, I'm launching a new website called digital.health, which will be a place for anyone to find the technologies that exist today and have a sort of a digital pharmacopoeia, what a clinician could prescribe to a patient. Now, one of the things that you've talked about is voice as a biomarker. Mm-hmm. What might that indicate? There are several companies, I'm actually an advisor to one called Beyond Verbal, and there's an app you can try called Moody's which is for fun, but it listens to voice in real time and gives you a ping on your emotional state. Are you passionate? Are you happy? Are you depressed? Are you maybe trying to hide something? And that can give you a touch of point of your emotional state. And imagine your phone is listening to you or your Amazon Alexa or Google Home. Yeah, it's amazing to me how many people are comfortable being listened to 24 hours a day by Google and Amazon. Let's assume that their voice is part of constant monitoring. Would that be something that would be then correlated in ways that we can't even guess with blood pressure and heart and that kind of thing, and then become predictive of a bad mental state or depression? Yeah, well, speaking of depression, one of the huge issues in health and medicine today is mental health. We still don't have much data or biomarkers on mental health. It's a huge component of costs from depression to schizophrenia to PTSD. Now with some voice, you can tell whether someone might be going from depressed and talking slowly to being manic or schizophrenic. So these could be early indicators if somebody's about to go through a depressive era or early indicators of bipolarity or yeah. And now we're seeing companies build platforms to integrate your voice, your movement, what your texting is, what your Instagram filters might be to predict who might be getting, let's say depressed. Let's say someone is manic depressive. They may mm-hmm. swing between one or the other, you might want to see that early swing and change your medications earlier, call your psychological support team, or point them to a chat bot that can give them some support or a televisit. You know, part of the future of healthcare is a lot more of this telemedicine where you can do virtual visits with a real psychologist or maybe an avatar version. This company, Beyond Verbal and Mayo Clinic, studied patients with heart disease and voice changes when you're starting to develop heart disease. 
Really? It could be indicative of incipient heart disease. Yes. What element of the voice changes? The tone or the raggedness or breathlessness or? Well, you can hear someone who's got a bad cold, for example, sure. that, or someone might have heart disease if they get some fluid in the lungs. That's going to mm. change the tonality of their voice. And they've been able to pick up those distinct changes. There's also elements of voice that might predict neurologic disorders like Parkinson's. And again, it's the correlation of that. As you're talking, I'm thinking like, You've got the voice coming in, but you have that continuous blood pressure and heart information, and it's suddenly all those together going through a machine learning algorithm, kind of like the one we saw with the eye scan. Now you start seeing how, yeah, I could point very strongly at like heart trouble in nine months, which is a lot better than finding out you had heart trouble nine seconds ago. Exactly. Another piece is so important is sleep. Sleep changes. Well, your quality of sleep impacts your risk of obesity, heart disease, depression. Sleep changes can be detected with a simple mattress sensor or the ring I'm wearing out of Finland. Yeah, tell us about your ring. Oh, this is a fun device I got in Finland, a company called Aura. Basically, a quantified self-device on your finger that tracks heart rate, tracks motion, temperature, steps, but is very good at giving you a very quantified sleep and a sleep score. How does a ring know when you're in deep sleep? What does it detect and crunching together? There are certain patterns in your heart rate availability, movement. Like when you're in deep sleep, you're very still, you're almost mm. paralyzed. When you're in REM sleep and your eyes are moving, your heart rate's a little higher. This can pick up and estimate your respiratory rate. And it can build you not a perfect map, but it gives you your total time of sleep, time in deep, light, and beyond. And as we crowdsource this, I can now take my Fitbit, for example, go onto the app there, look at my sleep score and my components of sleep and compare that to other people my age and sex and compare it to my history for the last month. So I can get a bit of guidance. If I realize that, wow, I'm really only sleeping five hours a night, I might want to get to bed earlier. If I notice that I'm waking up 60 times at night and even realize it, I might have sleep apnea. Right. That is something that's very underdiagnosed. You could do a whole sleep lab at home now, yeah. not the full-on hospital version, but 80% of what you would get that can help pick up and hopefully be proactive for a whole set of diseases. Again, it's like the correlations that get interesting. Mm -hmm. It might become determined very quickly that, wow, when people have five hours of sleep, it kind of disrupts their cardio patterns the next day. Except for this person who's really, really robust, is there something we should be looking at in this subset of people who don't get disrupted? Mm -hmm. Or maybe this person is getting hyper-disruptive. They get five hours of sleep as opposed to their normal eight. Mm -hmm. Their heart rate goes up by 20 beats. And what that has correlated to in the past is this third thing that we can't even guess at. It is really the correlation of multiple indicators that we wouldn't even know were necessarily cross-related. Combining it with looking at hundreds of thousands, millions of people as opposed to the tiny handful in the Framingham study, that it gets kind of intriguing. Another thing that you've talked about as a potential biomarker is breath. Sure. Well, one of the early Shark Tank success companies, I'm holding one of their prototypes, is breathometer that will track blood alcohol, but one of their versions will actually track the molecules in your breath. And the marketing was, you're going to go on a date, you might want to see if you have bad breath or not. But we now also know that molecules from your bloodstream are exuded in your breath and can be indicative of early cancer. Someone yeah. with lung cancer has a different molecular profile that can be picked up from breath. And not just one breath, you can now breathe into a vice and capture five minutes of breath, which is a lot in terms of analysis. And this is still research phase, correct? Or well, is it? it's moving to reality across the gate here at NASA Research Park. They have an early nano nose. You may recall that some dogs can be trained to sniff out cancer. Cancer. Yeah. They've now applied that approach to what are the molecules that are the fingerprint of an early cancer? Mm. There's a company out of the United Kingdom in Ireland called Alstone Biomedical, already in clinical trials, taking breath and hopefully picking up early lung cancer and maybe even colon cancer or metabolic diseases because mm. disease like diabetes will show up in your breath with ketones and other molecules. So 
breath as a biomarker. So we can talk about sweat. There are folks developing sensors and patches that will measure the molecules of sweat. Now that might be interesting if you're running a marathon and want to optimize your hydration. It might be helpful if you have heart disease or renal failure to pick up your sweat molecules and tweak your potassium regimen, for or example. Or it might be helpful if you never want to get heart disease yeah. or renal failure. I'm going back to your theme about healthcare versus sick care. Anybody who goes into renal failure or heart disease is probably going to have very, very distinctive sweat. But the interesting question is, were there warnings in their sweat that mm -hmm. simply couldn't have been picked up because it was 1997 and we weren't doing that kind of thing three years before the problem came on? And there's also things that we all have in our homes. You and I both saw a talk at TED not long ago about Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. Using your home Wi-Fi as a health monitoring device. Wi-Fi now has been published by MIT, can pick up the vital signs of up to 10 people in the same room, and now can even track sleep patterns and movement. Now, vital signs, is it breath or is it also even heart rate? They're doing heart rate, respiratory rate, and motion. So 10 people for the standard Wi-Fi router. Maybe a little bit of a special Wi-Fi router. Yeah, don't quote me on yeah, what yeah, exact yeah. element On the specialness have. of the Wi-Fi, yeah. But we're entering an age when you're just going to walk into your house or any setting, it's going to know it's you or your wife or a friend. You'll start to potentially pull out your respiratory rate, your heart rate, your motion. So we're going to be exuding our digital health exhaust 24-7. There's a dark side to that. What if yeah. you know, your insurance company says, you know, hey, you really haven't been moving much and you haven't been doing exercise, we're going to raise your premium. That's sort of the big brother element. We can hopefully as a society have the discussion so it's a little bit less like big brother and maybe a little bit more like small mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, if my insurance company is doing something that's conceptually creepy, but actually adds seven years to the end of my life, not because they love me, but because they want to save money and I get to live an extra seven years, I'm fine with that. Our moms all nudged us to do things that we didn't want to do because they were good for us. There can be ways that even the things that are at least conceptually creepy turn out to be highly beneficial. And it's funny, I saw something, Huggies Diapers, terrible name, Tweet P. Diapers tweet when the kid needs a change, but okay, I could see why that would be beneficial. But to get to the last biomarker, our toilets will probably at some point become chemical labs as well, because anything that drops out of our body has got a lot of data that could be radiating out of it, right? Bingo. You know, your input you can measure. There's now little handheld spectrophotometers that can analyze your food and tell whether it might have peanuts in it or gluten if you're having an allergy, mm. or maybe even count the calories. Your food. Oh, interesting. Right? So, so what's going into your body? Quantified food. Number, the number one drug, there's a quote from Hippocrates, you know, let food be thy medicine. Yeah. So with food, what's interesting there is like, you know, all these fad diets, high fat, low fat, low carb, you know, high protein. It's very confusing. Number one, you can measure your input with some devices. Yes. Even your smart AI camera is going to look at your breakfast and know what's in it. And then you can measure output. And TweetPea is a small example. Even just take something as simple as a camera in your toilet, not that appetizing to think about. Let's see it sees a change in your bowel habits. Yeah. Maybe that will give you a clue that maybe you're having early colon cancer or pick up early blood in your urine that might pick up a urinary tract infection or even something more serious like a malignancy in your bladder. So those may come. And I've seen several companies and startups start to build out those platforms. One other thing I'd like to do a deep dive into is this very interesting thing called the Conquering Cancer X Prize, which you are running or overseeing. Could you describe what an X Prize is, right. an X Prize mm -hmm. generically, and why that is a powerful mechanism for marshalling energy, enthusiasm, and investment? Right. Peter Diamandis in the late 90s put together the first X Prize. It was the Ansari X Prize to get the first non-NASA rocket up to space and back. And this is Peter Diamandis who co-founded Singularity University. And so Peter comes back into your life. Yeah. Right. He was doing this crowdsource, the energy of innovators around the world to attack spaceflight. And actually, Spaceship One, developed by Burt Rutan, a famous aeronautical engineer, won that prize. And now that company was 
taking it to the next level by Richard Branson. Richard Branson. And probably in a couple of years, you can pay a lot of money and go fly to the edge of space. And, and that- the idea is that if you have a $10 million prize, let's say, you can catalyze the investment of far more than $10 exactly. million dollars worth of work by people who are trying to attain it either because they want to get rich or because they're in a university setting and they can get funded anyway, but this is a cool thing that attracts attention. What's the multiple? And hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on that first Ansari X prize. On the, and it was a $10 million prize. Right, which has now catalyzed the whole consumer space movement. So it can unlock these elements that wouldn't have been unlocked. The idea of an X prize is to put a prize out there that's audacious, but achievable, and it's going to not be something that the market is necessarily going to go after in the same time frame in the same way. And it's going to excite a lot of people to right. get projects together. So, right. And there's yeah. been other X prizes. One was for oil cleanup, because that hadn't changed in dozens of years. And even the fourth place team had at least doubled the speed of cleaning up oil and making it cheaper. And I think the second place team was led by some tattoo artists that used their tattoo knowledge and technology and had a way to better approach oil cleanup. So it crowdsources new minds. And how many X prizes roughly have there been thus far? There's been the space one, one for cars that could go long distance, electric cars. There are active ones like an artificial intelligence X prize and one around carbon sequestration. There's a newly launched one to enable you to put yourself into a robot and do dangerous things. So some of these are quite bold and audacious. And what's powerful about it is you get new minds, new thinking to spend a lot of energy and time to solve a problem in a new way. So when we're looking at developing a new prize. The Cancer X Prize. Cancer X Prize. I thought, well, lots of people are going after immunotherapy and new approaches to cures, but there's not been a new way to really screen for and detect cancer in dozens of years. We're still stuck with colonoscopies and mammograms, for example. And many patients present late stage with things like ovarian cancer and pancreatic and brain cancer. So let's talk about that. What percentage of cancers currently are detected at stage one, stage two versus very, very late? Like what percentage of cancers are asymptomatic until it's either too late or almost too late. It really depends on what subtype, but let's say yeah. roughly only 10 to 20% are picked up at stage one, you know, when you can just cut it out with one surgery and not require advanced chemotherapy or radiation therapy. So early detection is a big deal, even with the relatively primitive blunt instrument tools that we have for fighting cancer right now. What's the difference in survival rate if you catch something at stage one or two versus three or four? Big picture, about 90% of cancers can be cured if you pick them up at an early stage, stage zero, stage one, versus only about 10% often have long cure if you pick them up at late stage, stage three or stage four, where it's already metastatic. So even with today's cures, which nobody's satisfied with, early detection could literally save nine times as many lives. Take 10% of the people from the stage in which 90% can be saved. And if you were able to hypothetically detect every cancer early, suddenly you have 100% of the people, the mortality rate from cancer would plummet merely by early detection. I'm putting merely in quotes. Like that shows what a big deal it is. And we all very intuitively feel like the way to beat cancer is to cure it. And boy, would that be amazing. But the truth is, early detection solves, it sounds like, almost 90% of the problem. Right. And many folks here in the U.S., they never get their screening mammogram or their colonoscopy at age 50, and you want to have something that's actionable. Some cancers, like prostate cancer, you don't even want to screen for it in some folks at a certain age because there's not much you should do about it. Because it grows so slowly, and if you treat it, the treatment can have terrible side effects. But I've had friends who died very rapidly from pancreatic cancer that when they presented to the hospital, it's always already a huge mass. It's usually stage four pancreatic Often, when it's right? detected, right? Exactly. Yeah. Or ovarian cancer or the brain cancers that only present after a few months of headaches. 
Is there even a diagnostic for pancreatic cancer today? There's no really good one. You could now take something relatively simple. They're now on the exponential handheld yes. ultrasound and artificial intelligence algorithms that will start to read ultrasound. So you could think about a pancreatic screen that could look at your pancreas, your ovaries, your kidneys that you could do at home as a home screen. So let's talk about what you're trying to get done now with the XPRIZE. Right. And we've established how unbelievably powerful early detection can be mm -hmm. if only we can get good at it. Absolutely. So we're designing a new XPRIZE where the winning teams will develop ways that are rapid, accurate, and affordable detect cancers early when early detection matters. And we envision that being a test that can detect multiple cancers under $24, under 24 hours from Tennessee to Tanzania. So that's very aspirational. It's challenging. Part of what we're going to do with this next prize is have a match.com model. You could join a team that's based in France because you might be a good coder. You might have an AI expert and a microfluidic person at MIT partnering with someone in Singapore. So a team won't necessarily come to you pre-made. You're going to actually help people assemble teams. You can come with your team or you could join a team. And then we're going to roll this prize out hopefully early 2019. The teams will start assembling sometime next year. There'll be a process where you can put the teams together, apply in various stages of this. We envision this to be a $100 million or more X prize where there may be subcomponents, like an AI component. What if we had all the digital data from mammograms mm. and we crowdsource and have a subprize? How could you take the existing data and better analyze digital mammograms to make better diagnostics and therapeutic support? Oh, interesting. So we do have this massive base of scans right. that have already been taken that have, in fact, been mapped to actual outcomes. Like God knows how many mammograms are on file somewhere, exactly. and all of the older ones, mm -hmm. we know whether that person developed cancer or not. Might we get insurance companies to share some of their data? Because maybe you pick up signals from consumer behavior that might indicate early cancer. Mm -hmm. Lots of new ways to think about it. There are some really amazing blood biopsy companies starting to look at this approach as well. Liquid biopsy. Liquid biopsy. Would you care to define what liquid biopsy is? So this is an area that's moving quickly. Let's say a pregnant mother who's want to look at the health of the fetus. It used to be you have to put a needle into the placenta and pull out some cells and analyze them. And, and when you say used to be, we're talking eight or nine years ago. Actually, it's still commonly done. Amniocentesis has some risks. But it was the only choice until quite recently. Correct. Yeah. But in the last 10 years now, work pioneered at Stanford and elsewhere can look at circulating DNA of the fetus and detect that in the blood of the mother. And now we have the ability to do deep sequencing, detect those genes and determine whether that child might have something like trisomy that would give them downs or other genetic diseases. So it's a much less invasive, but very powerful way to do prenatal screening. So a simple blood draw instead of a needle going into a place that exactly. is very, very sensitive. So that's now evolved to the point where if you have a tumor, let's say a pancreatic tumor, some of those cells are dying and the DNA is circulating around the body of the patient. Now you can take some blood from that patient, find some of the DNA associated with pancreatic tumor and detect that. It's pretty easy to determine that in a patient with advanced disease, but could that go all the way to the point where we could take a drop of blood and pick up molecules that are representative of an early cancer? So that's what's often called liquid biopsy. This could be one of your early detection vectors. This might be getting a blood draw that could pick up a cancer that might be almost anywhere in the body, I imagine, on this side of the blood-brain barrier. And that's one promising approach. There's companies like Grail and Gardent and Freenome looking at that sort of approach. But I still think, from my understanding, talking to them, it's still several thousand dollars and not something that's going to be globally available or super rapid and cheap. But maybe this prize can help those companies tweak their forward or combine with others or companies doing breath or folks developing AI sensors and ultrasound. And I imagine that the winning teams won't just have any one blood test or one sensor. It may be some combination of a platform where you can literally walk into a booth that may take some urine, some blood, some breath, put on a hat to look at your brain in five or 10 minutes, give you a nice scan and 
call you all clear or indicate that there's a next step to go to work something up. But I think by catalyzing new thinking, even if we change the pathway of early detection by a year or two, that's going to save tens of thousands of lives. Oh, tens of millions even, right? And hopefully bring this to many parts of the world with no access to screening. And then hopefully if you are in Tanzania and you pick up early breast cancer or ovarian, we can now bring some technologies that were only available in the West and democratize that. And we want this to be the all-in prize. You could support this with a crowdsourced dollar and your organization could put in millions. And you already have a first sponsor, correct? We have support from the American Cancer Society as an anchor. Lloyd's been very involved in designing the prize. If you just go to xprize.org slash cancer, you can sign up and get more information as this rolls out. What is the time term of the... I anticipate this will be probably about a five-year prize, but with some micro-prizes in between, some sub-prizes like the AI elements, maybe uh, prizes for pulling together a way of giving a risk score. As an oncologist who has this exceptional insight into what's happening on many fronts, where do you think we'll be in five to 10 years? If for every 100 people who die of cancer today, how many would you imagine will die of cancer in 2028? I think it would be reasonable to have a 40-50% decrement there. Part of that, again, driven by earlier detection. Part of that driven by this new approach of powerful targeted therapies from immunotherapies and molecular approaches. Just like HIV was a death sentence 20 years ago, now it's a chronic disease for many because they have a combination of cocktails that keeps it at bay. Some forms of cancer may not be fully cured, but will become very chronic and manageable. Yeah. So now, another thing that you just gave a talk about at Cedar sinai was VR and AR in a medical setting. It'd be great to talk about that briefly. Let's start with augmented reality. There are now platforms where I can now pull up the patient data, maybe your lab information, and might coach me to ask you certain questions. It now is enabling me to scribe, and someone can be recording the data from this, so I'm not spending so much time taking notes. But now I can potentially layer data through things like the Microsoft HoloLens, where I can virtually see data about you overlaid on your body. So let's take an example of a spine surgery. I have a CT scan, I have MRI data of your spine, you're laid on the table. Now I can literally overlap the anatomical data of where your spine is, where I want to operate, have guidance between the procedure steps. This is pre-incision. You can basically see the X marks the spot superimposed exactly where X wants to be on that particular So that's active guiding procedure. We can now dial that back all the way to the virtual reality side, so full on VR where before I even walk into the operating room, I'm going to be in the virtual operating room. I'm going to see your actual spine and CT scan data, and I can practice that entire procedure with virtual instruments. So that's a powerful way to simulate the entire procedure ahead of time. This is 10 years out? No, there are companies already blending this. There's a company out of Stanford called OsoRx for orthopedic surgeons, for example, to train. There's a company out of Israel called Augmetics, which is layering augmented reality data overlapping when you see the patient on the Mm. table. And also, in terms of training, you were part of this very interesting procedure that happened in London, right? So the training idea here is that there's not enough surgeons in many parts of the world, and many of the specialists may not be in a remote area. I was in the operating room with a good friend of mine named Shafi Ahmed. He's a surgeon in London. He's often called the virtual surgeon. He's a cancer GI specialist in terms of surgery, but he pioneered the approach to actually record a surgery in VR. So you can go on YouTube So he has something like a GoPro on his head when he's operating? No, you put a VR camera above the patient. And so literally you can go back later and watch that whole surgery. You can look around the room in your VR headset. You're not seeing it from his perspective. You're in the room and you can walk around and watch from different directions. Exactly. It's like you're right where the anesthesiologist is looking over. So two years ago, I was in the operating room with him where they did the first live stream surgery. They had the camera there and they were streaming in VR to about 5,000 individuals around the world using their Google Cardboard, put your smartphone in a VR case. There were 5,000 attendees. 
in real time watching this surgery and being educated in how to do this particular case. And of course, there's no reason why it would have to be in real time. It would be just as educational for somebody to press play and experience this after the fact, right? That's one option. But number two, let's say you're a relatively inexperienced surgeon in Antarctica, let's say, yeah. and you have a case you've never seen before. Well, now you could bring in a virtual mentor watching with you in real time. There's another startup called Proximy, which is pioneering even using an iPad or things like HoloLens and Google Glass to mentor and have someone over your shoulder virtually coaching you, sort of social VR meets mentoring, meets training. Telementoring, I think, was a term you used. Telementoring, or again, recorded surgeries and other procedures that can be done in asynchronous ways. And then the final part of that's getting super interesting is virtual and augmented reality is therapy. I think most people know the game Pokemon Go. You know, it's an augmented reality game on your smartphone. You could collect badges and points. That got a lot of people out and moving. Like people walked billions of more steps than they would have otherwise collectively. So it actually had a lot of health applications. That's kind of augmented reality. Some people do versions of that when they're running on a treadmill and they're racing people virtually. But we're now seeing virtual reality move to actual therapeutics. Someone with a bad pain situation, let's say they've had a burn and they're in the burn unit getting painful debridements. They can this now, is a hypothetical or this no, is this something? this is today. That, what's the company behind it and uh, what's happening? Academic groups out of Stanford, out of Cedars-Sinai, out of Seattle. I think it's called Snow World, where you put on the VR headset and you're in Antarctica. The, the patient of, is. The, the patient, patient is, is suffering from burns. And they're seeing a bunch of penguins and snow falling and they're throwing snowballs at the penguins and they actually feel virtually cold. And it turns out these patients need less than half of the amount of opiates than they would normally. Literally. Just being in this VR environment. In this virtual yeah. cold environment. So that's one of the early approaches and for managing opiates or pain needs to help rewire your brain. It's being used with folks with PTSD to put them back in potentially scary environments, maybe even blending that with other drugs like psilocybin and MDMA. We heard about it in a very recent episode. Exactly. Yes. So blending of modalities. So I just got my Oculus Go the other day, $200 device. I can now fly on an airplane and be in a virtual environment. If your Twitter feed is to be believed, you actually did that. Felt a bit nerdy. But you couldn't see anybody judging you for being nerdy. You could just hit the mute judgment button and all those people staring at you for being nerdy, you can't see yeah. them. What do you care? See no evil, speak no evil. Yeah. Um, another study that was done at Stanford, let's say there's a, an eight-year-old kid has to go into the hospital for a pretty scary procedure. You can now take that child at home before they ever go into the hospital, put them in the VR. They can see the pre-op room. They can see the OR, their post-op. They can understand the surgery. It definitely reduced stress and anxiety in kids. And that's being done in adults in hospital settings. They're stuck in the hospital. Let's say they're going up. They might be in there for a month or two. They can now virtually be almost anywhere in the world, visit their friends, their classroom, have social VR. This has even been used in hospice care for folks in their last days, but they can put on the Oculus or other VR type headset, visit places from their past, interact with friends and family. So it's gonna be a very powerful modality and it's getting cheap and available. And we're just starting to see the applications for therapy, training and beyond. Yeah, the augmented reality as well. I would imagine having access to a patient's vital signs while you're operating on them without having to look up, having the equivalent of what a mechanic would see when they're looking at a complex environment inside like a Boeing jet engine. The human body's pretty darn complex as well. To have those kinds of heads-up elements available through AR as well is just something that could be very powerful. So here's an example. You know, laparoscopic surgery, you're trying to take out the gallbladder. Laparoscopic, for those who don't know. This little belly button surgery, you're putting a little camera and some instruments through small incisions in the belly. So instead of opening up the patient and 
cutting out the gallbladder the old-fashioned way. You do it in a very minimally invasive way. You need the access to the visuals that are coming out of the system that's gone inside. Today, it's basic visuals. But the next layer, the AI and machine learning can look at that picture and say, well, this is the gallbladder. Here's the blood vessel. Here's the hidden nerve. Here's the tumor behind that, which you can't see. And we're going to start to learn in real time to mentor that surgeon through that case. And here's the dangerous part. And by the way, the anatomy is a little different in this patient. So we're going to blend AR and AI and coaching and big data and crowdsourcing of maybe millions of videos of a laparoscopic surgery to dramatically improve outcomes and Mm. de-skill that so that all these healthcare technologies can eventually bring healthcare to folks who don't have access today, can take a nurse in a rural village in a remote mountain region where there's almost no medical care and upskill them to be as good as an experienced cardiologist or maybe proceduralist, bring in the care when they need it through telehealth and mentoring or a drone that can drop off the drugs or blood products. So it's this combination of things. AR, VR is a great example of convergence. And also, by the way, can be used to leverage behavior change. You may know all your steps in your sleep and your diet, but unless you can change behavior, and we're seeing now augmented reality give you a AR coach, um, psychologist. There's a platform out of USC that basically built an avatar of a psychologist. They can watch the patient talking, their eye gaze, their voice, and respond appropriately. Mm. And they're blending that with actual care to, let's say, former military folks deal with PTSD Mm. in a very effective way that's showing its promise. You don't seem very excited about this for some reason. (laughs) I'm joking. Um, When I first saw your TED Talk on the main stage, I was 2011. 2011, yeah. How time flies. Your enthusiasm about it is both infectious and also reassuring because I assume you know a thing or 10 about healthcare and the fact that you're optimistic and enthused like this is an incredibly positive thing. I want to be careful not to overhype things. Part of what I like to do is to help catalyze innovators, patients, doctors, nurses, systems to see the potential of what's already here and what's coming and catalyze its use in smarter ways to solve healthcare pain points. You know, something we catalyzed in exponential medicine, we had the head of innovation from the National Health Service in England come, first a participant, then his faculty, and he got inspired to like, National Health System has some amazing doctors there, but they're getting burnt out. Yeah. He went and started a new program, health entrepreneurship for clinicians there. Now, now like 300 young medics, as they call them, entrepreneurs now leveraging NHS data and platforms that is going to catalyze a whole new set of tools. NHS, which is, for those who don't know, that's the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. They have amazing data. Mm-hmm. Kaiser has amazing data because they have so many patients. They have some really, really good research docs, and occasionally you hear one of them being interviewed on NPR. They just have this superpower of insight because of the number of patients that have been in the Kaiser health systems throughout the United States. And NHS, obviously, they have the entire United Kingdom. And that data access has led to very, very powerful insights. And again, using the analogy of the Framingham study, comparing that to what might be achieved with the All of Us survey, comparing to that what could be achieved with just the exhaust coming from all these different devices, it's kind of amazing what could result from this. And particularly because we do have the machine learning tools as evidenced by that amazing retina work that we talked about earlier. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what can be done. Really, truly amazing things can arise from all this. Well, thank you very much for putting me in such a fabulous mood and hopefully many of our listeners as well. Thanks so much for having me. That was fun. Thanks. Alrighty. I always love talking to Daniel because I come away from our conversations so optimistic. And this was a particularly special one because it came with a built-in field trip that after the conversation, we spent a bunch of time crawling inside under and around those World War II vintage planes that we were talking about. These were amazing contraptions, almost like flying factories. They were so industrial and had such large crews doing such mechanical work. There was a B-17, a B-24, a P-51, and more. 
At least that's what Daniel told me, and I do believe him because the man does know his World War II-era warbirds. Apparently, this particular fleet of planes comes to Moffett Field every year, Moffett Field being the airstrip that's contained within that vast NASA facility where we conducted our interview. And I have to say, Daniel was, just as advertised, quite a bit like a fully grown kid around all that gear. On the other end of the age spectrum, we met a 100-year-old airman that day who had been part of a B-17 crew during World War II. The guy's name was even Orville, which when you think about it is kind of the perfect name for an aviator of his generation. We met him just as he was about to go up in a B-17 again for the first time in 70 years. And I put a few pictures of all that fun up on my website at after-on.com for those of you who are interested. Next, I have something really intriguing for the patrons backing the show at the five bucks a month level or more. It pertains to the amazing contrast between the Framingham study that Daniel and I discussed, which truly revolutionized medicine in the 20th century, and the massive broad population genomics studies, which are just getting underway right now. I can't think of a better person to comment on this phenomenon than Robert Green, who is my guest on episode 16 back in November. Robert, as many of you will remember, is an expert in personal genomics at the Broad Institute, which is affiliated with both Harvard and MIT, and as someone who was a practicing clinician for decades before he became an academic researcher, he has a truly frontline understanding for how the Framingham study shaped the science and practice of medicine over the past decades. So in my Patreon feed today, you will hear a conversation between Robert and I about Framingham and its massive successor which just started getting underway in the last few weeks. It's called the All of Us Study. All of Us will study a million Americans intensively for years. Unlike Framingham, which didn't collect as much as a single letter of DNA for any of its initial, original participants, All of Us will ultimately collect full genomes for almost every participant. And rather than being paired with just a few raw numbers from biannual physical exams, This data will connect up to millions and millions of data points, many collected from the sorts of devices that Daniel and I just discussed. So please tap into my Patreon feed if you would like to hear Robert and I discuss this fascinating and timely subject. It's almost a 40-minute conversation, much less formal than the one you just heard, much less edited and prepared, but nonetheless quite intriguing. And coming up soon... On this show, I have a truly intriguing interview with one of the great architects and influencers of 1960s American culture who has been no less influential in shaping the digital culture that we're also immersed in today. And he has also teamed up with George Church, another recent guest, to resurrect some extinct species, including the woolly mammoth. That's coming up in just a couple weeks, so stay tuned in June. So, as technical listeners, here we conclude the second and final installment of my interview with Daniel Kraft. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoy my work, I hope you'll consider visiting my site at after-on.com or just type the words after on into your favorite podcast player and scroll through the episodes. You'll find lots of stuff about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me here next week on ours.